Claire Randolph Shepherd Sagebrush. My name is Shauna Jacko. I'm a clinical nurse educator with Vanda Pharmaceuticals. My role as a nurse educator is to increase awareness on this very rare condition that affects mainly individuals who are totally blind. But you can have some vision and still develop this very rare condition. Non-24 circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder. That's the full condition name. It's narrowed to non-24 for short. Easier term to remember and understand. So if you have difficulty sleeping at night or difficulty staying awake during the day, this may be related to your blindness. The three main symptoms of non-24 is difficulty falling asleep at night, difficulty maintaining that sleep, you know, being able to get a full night's sleep, and or difficulty staying awake during the day where you may experience having to take naps or uh, it's difficult trying to stay awake during the day or to the other extreme where you're falling asleep uncontrollably. These symptoms with non-24 can come up and describe it as being cyclical in nature. So there may be some days and nights where you don't have any difficulty falling asleep or staying awake. Um, other times where it is a struggle and during those times when it's a struggle, that's when it may be affecting the quality of your life. That could be physically, socially, emotionally, mentally, um, because non-24 is a rare chronic disorder. So meaning chronic, that over time, that may start to affect the quality of your life. How non-24 happens, just to give you a little general overview, is individuals that have this condition either are not able to perceive any light perception or enough light perception through their eyes to get that signal to our brain to tell us when it's day and when it's night. So if we're not able to perceive any or enough light perception, that can lead to those three main symptoms of non-24. Like I mentioned, it affects mainly individuals who are totally blind, up to 70%, but you can have some light perception and still develop non-24. So if you're struggling with a routine sleep pattern and have been struggling with this for some time, it's affecting the quality of your life, or you may just be interested in learning more about non-24 because you may not have heard of it, you can reach out to me directly at 202-538-0396. And that way I can get you connected with one of our health educators. The importance of our health educators is they're there to provide you further information and education on non-24. Grove Amoeba is proud to present Audio Hijack 3. Record any audio on your Mac from software applications to microphones and other hardware. It's so rare, your healthcare provider may not have heard of this condition. So our health educators are there to further educate you, also set up our account manager to educate your healthcare provider. They can mail you, email you literature um, so that you can do your own research. Um, you have that continued support with our health educator. So if you would like to learn more about non-24, please call me 
1-800-273-0396. Again, my name is Shauna Jacko, one of the clinical nurse educators with Banda. I look forward to meeting many of you um, virtually during the convention or over the phone. Enjoy the convention. Thank you. Okay, um, Artis will be back shortly and we'll do a door prize. And uh, yeah, we'd like to thank Vanda um, Pharmaceuticals. You can go ahead and go to the next presentation. I've got door prizes for the end, end of the morning okay. session. We can you know, thank Vanda Pharmaceuticals for being one of our sponsors and exhibitors. It's it's fantastic to have them and, and to give us an update on the latest uh, advancements in the cure and treatment, or not cure, but the treatment for non-24, which affects a large majority of our our members in the entire blindness community. Wonderful that they support us uh, and the blindness community that they have our best interest. Our next session, responsibility BP vendors have after they are licensed. And there be myself, part of that panel, that past president of RC, uh, Jeff Tom, uh, retired legal counsel for the state of California, Apache uh, from California, and uh, we'll hopefully offer some insights in what to expect and, and um, you know, give you some, some, some food for thought. Uh, how you proceed uh, through your vending career. With that, I, th I guess I can start out uh, a little bit and then we'll um, switch it. Uh, we'll have Joni give us you know, her insights as to what uh, she feels, and Jeff can wrap it up uh, and try to tie it in a bundle for us. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this enterprise program has been so invaluable to myself, uh, for my own personal well being, as well as my family and the financial stability of my family. It's just a remarkable program. It's so important that we keep this program viable. So the, there was the legislators that uh, created back in 1934. They had extreme insight and uh, foresight that uh, gave us this best out of so many families. And that's one primary reason is because we are small business people, and I don't want to disparage large corporate. We need large corporate, but we cannot have all large corporate. We need small business people as ourselves. We take more of a personal interest in our customers, and customer service is something that will increase your bottom line. And you listen to your customers, as we heard uh, telling about how you can stay in touch with your customers and uh, learn what equipment is best suited for you. We have a, a valuable resource within our SLA staffs across the country. Basically, you look at the Randolph Shepard program as a large corporation. The RSA, Rehabilitation Service Administration, housed uh, under the Department of Education, as the uh, corporate managers. And we have 50 franchises under that, 50 different programs across the country, each state in Washington, D.C. 50 franchisees. Then within those states, we have sub-franchisees, which are us as the blind vendors. We all have that responsibility of taking care of our business because it reflects on all the way up the chain of command through our franchise corporation, our corporate franchise. Uh, the old adage, uh, you know, everybody were, were notices the bad apple in the barrel. And I'm proud to say that uh, we have a tremendous amount of good apples in our barrel. We can always hold that above any corporate 
entity that you can name. I'll put any of our vendors in far as customer service uh, and have the proper equipment and they, they go at the sagebrush, they go at the NAMA, they go wherever and learn what equipment is available and they learn uh, you, what suits them best. And we advocate for these manufacturers to provide accessible equipment and equipment that's uh, more usable to our customer base. And we learn, we have the ability to learn one-on-one -on -one with our customers as to what they, their desires, what they don't prefer. Uh, we can, we have that ability to reach out as we uh, service our, whether it's a um, uh, vending, vending cafeteria, snack bar, micromarket, uh, pantry, uh, office coffee service, whatever we have, we have that ability to interact with our customers on a direct basis. And um, sometimes we fall a little down and we fall into the, my old employees, you, you fall into the routine and you got to remember your routine uh, is always changeable. It's, that's at your discretion how you want to change your routine. But consistency is always uh, a must. Be consistent about your quality of service. Hide the, the interaction with your customers, what they want, and uh, bring it to them. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes um, the idea sounds good and it may not work out. And that's part of the business. You have to try new things. I come from Wisconsin, which we're an agricultural state, and uh, primary and tour state, and we've always, I've grown up um, always hearing that farmers are the biggest gamblers in, in the world. Being that we're supposed to be in Las Vegas, uh, gambling is probably not a negative term here. But farmers, they'll go to the bank every spring and leverage their farm, their house, and whatever else to buy seed and fertilizer and whatever else with the bet that they're going to get rain and bet that they're going to get enough sunshine and the bet that they will not get early frost on fruit lose their crop. They bet their entire life savings on the weather uh, and uh, their family's livelihood. Gambling is um, in, is not new to us in the vending business. We try new things. We buy a case of this or a case of that. And we, we learn to find outlets for that stuff that may not sell as well as you like it to sell, but, uh, but your customers will eventually realize you are receptive and responsive to needs and desires. And um, when a customer talks to you, drop that word no from your vocabulary. Sometimes your suggestion may not meet your needs or you've already tried that, and you want, but take the time to explain to them why it, that particular product or service may not work. But if, uh, if it sounds halfway good, they say, yeah, well, I'll try that. And, and you know, most outlets you can buy, you don't have to buy a case, you can buy a few, but you, you find outlets for those products, new products that um, don't sell. You find outlets uh, and build goodwill with those um, close to expiration. And you build goodwill in other avenues, whether you belong to Kiwanis or Rotary or Lions Club or anything else. I encourage you to get, get involved in that. You know, and, and that's an excellent outlet for products that uh, don't sell uh, or meet, meet your missions and sales uh, profit margin. But, uh, never be afraid to try something new and uh, listen to your customers. And, uh, and I think because that reflects on all of us. Your, your goodwill to your customers gets around because we are in government buildings primarily. And uh, government people do talk to each other and they'll share their experiences about their vendor and their food service supplier. It's a definite impact on all of us. So 
uh, and that's so important with sagebrush is that we everybody together and um, all work together, network and find out from each other what uh, works for us and what didn't work for us. And what didn't work for me may work for you. And so you have to analyze, take the time to analyze what's good, but always take the time to explain. And I'll give the final example. When I had two prisons and the warden in the prison, we became close allies. And uh, whenever I would request something, to do something within the prison system, uh, she would say, yes, I can get that done. And it would be done within hours or the next day. But uh, if there was something that I requested that did not meet their security levels or whatever else, she took the time to explain to me why I could not do that in that facility and what the consequences would be of the, the outstanding, you know, again, build your relationship with your um, building managers and stuff, your prison wardens and stuff. You learn from them and just improve your, uh, your ability. And you remember the old adage in the restaurant business and holds true in art? Your reputation is only as good as the last sandwich you served. If somebody had a bad experience, they're probably not going to come back. So we try to make every experience uh, with your customers uh, a pleasant one. But with that, I think, Tony, um, can you give us a little insight on what's going on your end there? First of all, I guess one of the most important responsibilities is your fiscal responsibility to um, your state to pay your monthly operating report for your IRS bills, your Board of Equalization, your sales tax. And also, I feel that the very most important responsibility is to your customers. The key to communicating with your customers is what responsibility. The key is, is communicating with your customers. And there's a lot of aspects of that. Your customers, they can buy their gum, their chips, their candy bars anywhere. They can go down the street, and it might be even cheaper. It might be more expensive, but they might like that place better. The thing that you need to figure out when you open a location is how best to serve the customers. And you have to remember, with a little humility, how to serve the customers, that you are serving the customers. It's not what you like, it's what they like. Sometimes I think the customers will come in if they feel special. If they feel like you are needing them to pursue your business, if they feel like they want to come in because maybe it's more fun here, maybe it's a little, maybe you have a little laughter going on to keep everyone in a good mood. Sometimes they have a lot of tension in customer circles and their office groups and their meetings and all. Sometimes there's a great amount of tension within these people, within the aspects of what they're working on. So listen to what they say. Listen to how they feel stressed and try to make it light. We do some silly things in my location, and it might be a little over the top for some of you. But every Friday, we used to, when we had office buildings open and, and there were people there, we had what we call the chicken dance time. We'd put the radio on real loud and play the chicken dance. And everybody would dance around in the lobby. And, and it was just silly and it was fun. And people would begin to ask every week, when's the chicken dance? When's the chicken dance? And I thought at first people were going to think I'm nuts. But they like that. They like you to show yourself. They want to see who you are and what you can do for them. Because after all, you're in their building. 
by invitation. And you have to remember that. And like I say, you need a little humility once in a while and a lot of laughter to keep that going. Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Thank, thank you, uh, Joanie. That's uh, excellent insight. And I, you know, that's valuable. I just need to hear that over and over again to remind ourselves. I'd also just like to remind people that, um, you know, this is a great program. We can get into, we can own a business with no personal investment, a financial investment. We have a lot of sweat equity put it, that we put into it. Um, but the success of any business is professionalism. You have to act professional, look professional in order to gain, uh, gain respect. You know, the old story about um, uh, the door-to-door salespeople in particular, in, when insurance companies, insurance agents would go from house to house selling insurance or whatever, they always drove the nicest cars, the big Cadillacs, Buicks, Oldsmobiles, big Lincolns or whatever. And um, the idea was to, to look successful. That person that you're knocking on their door sees you and says, oh, he's successful. People, other people must trust him, so I can trust him too. So, But if you show up at your cafeteria, your vending facility, you or your staff, and you got um, faded jeans, worn out jeans, or tennis shoes flopping around, or you know, the, uh, dirty hands or whatever. You, you need to be professional, and uh, I would strongly urge that you know you and your staff have un- uh, some type of uniform or at least a shirt or something to, to help people and make sure it's clean on a daily basis. Every place I've ever worked in the past, we uh, were required to at least launder our, our uniforms or clothes, or whatever. And uh, so just keep that, since we have everything else furnished to us by our SLAs, why not invest that into and give it an add to our professional look? So uh, just, uh, and thank you, Joni. I mean, your insights are just so invaluable there. With that, I asked Jeff Tom, retired attorney from the state of California and a long, strong advocate for the Randolph Shepherd program and for American Council of the Blind. Jeff, can you give us your insights? Sure. Thank you very much. This is a hard act to follow because, you know, I'm the non-vendor here and, you know, I don't have the insight that the two of you have. But let me give you a couple of different thoughts of where I come from. And it is true, as, um, as Dan just said, that you have been given the privilege of operating in the BEP program. You don't have to have all the financial wherewithal at the beginning as, say, a restaurateur might. You certainly have to put in every bit as much work. And so it's not like everything was just given to you and no one would expect you to think that way. A vendor's job is a hard one. But on the other hand, it is a privilege to be in this program and um, you have been successful. And so I think this has, to me, it has two different aspects to it that I want to cover today. And one's probably a little less controversial than the other. And that being to mentor those, and this was mentioned, both of these have been somewhat mentioned by Dan, But uh, the first of them is to mentor prospective vendors. You know, in in most states, you can do it through your training programs that states have, and you can do it as part of Sagebrush and an RSVA. There's a variety of ways to do this, but it's so important to, you know, perpetuate the program. And you have the ability really more than anybody else almost as the professionals who, who have done this and succeeded at it to help those behind you learn how to do it the right way. So it's extremely important. I know so many of you uh, do it and and enjoy doing it. 
Uh, I know, you know, Joni has, uh, for example, because she's in my state, has had a hand in uh, a large number of vendors over the years who have become very successful. There's a second area of mentorship that I want to talk about before I get into my final area, and that is, um, and here again is something I'm going to give a shout out to Joni on, so she's probably blushing in embarrassment, but it's also mentoring kids, um, you know, high school students or, or whatever, or that, that don't have the sort of work skills that they need, whether they're going to be vendors or, you know, whatever, they're going to be salesmen or computer programmers or whatever. You need work skills, and vendors have those skills. They have to have them or they're going to fail. And, and a lot of times these kids, you know, they don't have the chance to work at McDonald's necessarily or, or wherever that their sighted peers do. Some do, but a lot don't. And so you can help to, in some states, have these programs. And in other states, if you don't have them, you know, go to your, you know, commission for the blind or your, you know, whatever your state licensing agency is and try to start a program. Or even, you know, maybe just get permission to do it in your own facility. But, you know, have the one, a lot of times um, these kids don't even know how to make change very well. But whether it's making change or showing up on time or whatever, you can really play an important part in the life of a student. So now let me go to the second area of where I think there is a responsibility. And um, in this case, I'll use myself as an example because um, this is even more controversial, I think, than the mentorship area. I, too, was able to be fairly successful in my working life. Um, I did it working for the state legislature, but like many of you, it enabled me to support my family um, and, and live reasonably well. Um, and I, and to me, that made it such that I was really um, far more prosperous and, and, and that I thrived far more than so many of my unemployed, blind, and, and low-vision colleagues did. And, you know, in many cases, it wasn't as if they didn't want to be as successful as I was. They just may not have had the opportunities that I did. So for that reason, among others, but that's one of the main reasons that I've always tried to be an advocate for the community, um, whether it's advocating in education, or in services to seniors or for the Randolph Shepherd program. And I think, and I'm not saying, you know, everybody's forte isn't advocacy, but we can all do our part to help other people in the community. And certainly when you're a hardworking vendor during the middle of your day, or sometimes even on your weekend when you have to go in and because the refrigerator broke or whatever. You don't always have time to do those kinds of advocacy things. I didn't either. I had to work nights and weekends when I worked for the legislature. And so I know that, you know, your time is limited, and so you only do what you can. But when you have the time, I urge you to remember those other folks in the community who aren't, who haven't had, you know, all the breaks that you might have had. And yes, you did work hard to get those breaks, but even so... Uh, there, I think there is a responsibility to do what you can. You know, maybe advocacy and writing letters isn't your forte, but maybe you can, you know, go testify at a hearing, or or maybe you can raise money to, you know, help 
an advocacy organization. You know, we don't we all do things in different ways, but I think we do have a responsibility to give back to our community. And so I would urge you to not feel beholden, not feel it's like, oh, I have to do this, but you know, to do it to the best of your ability and you know, I think that when we try to make the world a little better place, we can all feel a little better for it. So that's really the final area of my insight, and I appreciate being with you today. And um, I'll turn it back over to Dan. So thanks a lot, everyone, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for your uh, insights and uh, wisdom and, uh, in foresight. And, you know, I'd just like to emphasize that, yeah, we we are fortunate. This program is the greatest. I've been to a lot of retirement parties for blind vendors over the years. And it's usually a, a large gathering of people, rather a solemn event, because they're gathered around a large wooden box. And that's just how great the program is. Um, and that's where the retirement party ends. Uh, and so why not, while we're able, let's reach out our hand to those that are less fortunate, that may not have the wherewithal or whatever, for whatever reason, let's help those, uh, whether it be one-on-one or in a group setting through ACB or RSEA, let's um, reach out and particularly younger because this program is in dire need of uh, young, uh, fresh blood uh, that can you know, make this program continue to glow and shine. Thank you, Jeff and uh, Joni. You know, I think we've got some wonderful perspectives there and insights and how we can preserve this program and make it better for everybody down the road. Okay. Any questions or comments from any, any hands up? Dan, can I jump in with a couple comments? You bet. You bet, Scott. I really enjoyed it. And, and Jeff, you got me thinking about uh, mentoring. Your, your presentation was wonderful. Couple things I was thinking about that I'd like to mention here is that um, a trainer we used to have here in Minnesota for our BEP program, one thing he used to say that has stuck with me was in our business, we're actually solving problems for profit. So identifying the problem, whatever to solve that problem, and we're here to help them solve that problem. Uh, and hopefully we do it in a profitable way. And uh, I sometimes have to break that down. And I often think to myself, how would I want to be treated as a customer buying something from this vending machine opposed to my side of it as the person who maintains and fills that machine? Um, You always have to think about both roles, your role as the person who's providing the uh, solution to the problem and the person that's coming with that problem. And the other thing I wanted to mention was mentoring is such an important thing. And I'll relate a little story to Minnesota. I know uh, a number of years ago, I started uh, asking our management committee, I said, why don't we have a mentor in this program? Someone who's a vendor who's been doing this for quite a while and someone new comes into our program. And I don't want them to think they're out on their own. This mentor should be reaching out to that new folk and say, how are things going? Do you have any questions on anything? Is there anything I can answer for you that's just not making sense? And you'll hear over and over again from new operators. It's like, man, that was so great when this person or that called me. I can relate to many moon ago 
just after they invented the wheel, a vendor who had been in this program for many, many years called me. And I'm in my first year, probably my first six months of having my business. And he called me up and he says, well, how's it going? And I was totally shocked. What, why are you calling me? And he says, I'm just calling to find out you got any questions. If there's anything you've seen in this program that doesn't make sense to you, is there any? That phone call is still with me 30 plus years later. And I just hope I've been able to give that back to someone in our program because when you're new, this is all very, very strange. And it, it takes a little while to get used to. And just knowing somebody's behind you and watching your back and prepared to help you if you need it is so important. And I encourage everybody in their state, if they don't have a mentor program, to look into installing it because it'll make your whole program look better. So that's what I wanted to share, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for your insights. I mean, that's, uh, you know, again, uh, we just cannot emphasize giving back. Like Jeff says, we just have to... You know, we've been so fortunate in our lives and so many of our colleagues have been brought to our families and our employees. We retain thousands and thousands of employees across the country. We made their lives better because we have the initiative to follow this through uh, with the support of um, our big corporate leaders in, in Washington and our, our franchise holders in each state. Uh, and we are, are the, the backbones of the, of the organization and we are the on the ground and stuff and not a one person project it's a village project it takes a village to raise a child well it takes a village to main, to raise a business enterprise program and it takes a village to maintain it so all stay together on that and uh, help each other out as best we can and help those less fortunate out whoever wherever we see that avenue open up for us uh, we'll move into our, our next segment here. It, it's with great pleasure and, and honor that uh, I uh, bring our next presenter on to you. As we move from the West Coast uh, to the Midwest, with, you know, the West Coast is Joni and Jeff, and Midwest with Scott and I. Now let's move to, to the East Coast and, well, to the D.C. area. Let's uh, hear from our, our corporate executive. Uh, he's been our guidepost, guidepost for quite a few years now, and he's always got some insights, and he watches over our program um, from, a, from above. And, and uh, it, through his leadership and uh, through his co partners and colleagues in D.C., uh, the program is not faltering on their part. So with that, I'd like to give you Jesse Hartle from the U.S. Department of Education, Rehabilitation Services Administration. Jesse, are you on? I am, Dan. Thank you. How are you? Real good, real good. Thank you for being here, Jesse. Yes, for a thing. Um, well, I uh, appreciate the invite on behalf of RSA. I, I'm bringing greetings from Carol Doback, who is um, still the acting commissioner of the Rehabilitation Services Administration as we go through that process that seems to go on and on now for confirmation of, of new political leadership within the department. So, um, you know, under Carol's leadership, we've, we've been able to do a lot of things within the Randolph Shepard unit. And of course, uh, also, um, I want to recognize our unit chief, Kareen Weidenthal, who has been guiding our work uh, at RSA, and my two colleagues, James McCarthy and Christine Grassman, who also uh, work on Randolph Shepard issues at the department there's been a lot of activity going on uh, in the midst of in the midst of covid with the department we've taken that opportunity to do a number of things in the last year to year and a half 
partly some due to COVID, which impacted us, our work greatly early through the middle of 2021, when Congress appropriated $20 million to be used to provide grants for relief and restoration to blind vendors who were impacted by COVID for losses uh, incurred because of COVID. When Congress appropriates money, everybody thinks, great, let's get the money, we'll get this money, it should be here next week. Well, there's a lot of work that went into getting that money out of the door, and I think it was an all-hands-on-deck type of atmosphere within the department. Other offices in the department head away into... Um, we had to send a document out for public comment, which states would um, use to submit their plans for how they were going to disperse the money. Pretty much all of those plans that that was approved by OMB and um, states submitted their their plans sometime, some in late April last year, most by my June and a couple others into August. Um, and we were pleased that we were able to approve all of the plans by um, September 30th of 2021. Now, we know that many states have dispersed the funds, and that's good. I know there are a couple that are uh, still have not dispersed, and we, we were want to take this opportunity to remind states that, you know, the point of the, the funds were to provide relief and um, restoration for blind vendors. And the other, the more important thing is that the, the drawdowns of those funds have to be made by September 30th of this year. Otherwise, they will be um, swept back to the Treasury. You, I believe, have till December to expend the funds, but they have to be drawn down from our system by September 30th of this year. Um, many of you... May, and, and I know there's a presentation on the RSA 15 later in the program. And normally, the RSA 15s are filled out between October and December, first quarter of a new fiscal year. So it would have been October 1st to December 31st of 2021 to report on FY21 activities. The FRRP funds have kind of thrown a little bit of a, a wrench into those timelines because Besides having a new RSA 15 report this year, we also had to figure out where uh, those funds should be counted on the RSA 15 report and multiple sections that requiring a little bit more work. And uh, we need to provide specific guidance to the SLAs on how those funds should be, should be counted. And we think we're very close to getting that guidance out, but we have had to kick the date for submission of the RSA 15 back a little bit. That's happening. Um, one of the new things we're doing within the Randolph Shepherd team, and I think this is an opportunity we hope that will foster more communication, more frequent communication between the uh, state programs and RSA. Um, and when I say state programs, I mean both SLAs, elected committees, and RSA, that we have initiated our, our three team members, Christine Grassman, Jim McCarthy, and I, are now responsible for 17 states each. There are 51 programs in the BEP, and we have each divided the program. So each of us is responsible for 17 um, states. So while Jim McCarthy is still the person that will handle arbitrations and Christine is doing conflict resolution, 
Um, they will also be joining me and providing technical assistance to the states that they are responsible for. That list of who is your liaison can be found on the rsa.ed website. If you go to programs, click Randolph Shepard, there will be a resources link in the, under that resources besides the liaison information. There's a lot of good information that we are starting to post more information on the website. Also under Randolph Shepard, there will be, there's a link to legislation, legislation, regulation, and other guidance. And that's where you'll find uh, the actual documents. I'm going to be highlighting three technical assistance circulars that the department has issued in the last uh, year and a half to help provide clarity on some important issues that we wanted to emphasize from the department to better assist the Randolph Shepherd community. And the first one we um, recognized, there is no definition of active participation. It's interpreted many different ways across the country. And we wanted to explain a little bit about how we thought active participation should work. So we released a technical assistance circular 2101. And that really involves how we think elected committees and state agencies should work together for the betterment of the program. The, the, the goal of the Randolph Shepard Act is to provide remunerative employment for blind vendors. And so we think that it's important that active participation, um, it is a partnership to meet the goals of the Randolph Shepard Act. And so any uh, active participation should be done in good faith. And it can be a negotiation. Everybody is not going to be happy all the time with what's being suggested, but both parties should approach it in good faith and striving to meet the goals of the Randolph Shepard Act and the final product. And that's what we hope that active participation will result in a bettering uh, or moving towards the goal of the Randolph Shepard Act. We in the TAC talk about different activities. It's not an exhaustive list in the TAC. We did not intend to write every possible thing that could be or a, a, an exhaustive list of what is active participation. But in general, we tried to list the major activities that should be automatics. The development of a program budget. And what I mean is how are set-aside funds going to be spent? What are we doing to update? Or are we planning to update equipment in a particular vending facility? The development of a budget is one of those areas where we think active participation should take place. It's listed in there. The development of the transfer and promotion policy, the training programs, how are we going to train new individuals to make sure that they're ready after training to operate a vending facility? And because we believe, of course, without saying, the development of, of the rules and policies, and because we believe that uh, active participation is a crucial part of developing the rules and regulations and policies and those type of items that need to come to the secretary for approval, we now require an email communication from the elected committee indicating that active participation took place before we will review the rule or policy. So if it somehow gets sent to us, 
and there isn't, uh, the EC is not on the incoming correspondence to the department, we will ask that we receive a note from the elected committee showing that active participation took place in the development of that policy. The last thing I will say about active participation is that active participation is not a veto. You may not agree with the final decision, but if there was active participation, you can't say, well, we didn't get to actively participate in this decision. If you're not happy with an action taken after active participation, there is the grievance process, which is still afforded to vendors or the elected committee. We hope that first point I mentioned that working in good faith towards the betterment of the program will not lead to too many grievances over a final decision. However, that would be the way to remedy if you don't like that action. Moving on to, I think that the TAC, which probably has had the most conversation recently, uh, would be TAC 2102. Um, And this deals with vending machines uh, and vending machine income on federal property. So this TAC does not apply to highway rest areas, and it doesn't apply to vending machines on state property. RSA Uh, may or may not have things to say about those properties in the future, but we don't, at this point, this only replies to those federal properties. And the background on this um, deals with, we we were asked about, uh, by a couple of federal agencies, about the requirements. And the way we best thought we would handle this is to issue a technical assistance circular to better explain what we thought the requirements of the statute in our regulations were. Our goal in the TAC is we found out there were a lot of areas where blind vendors were not filling vending machines on federal property. They weren't being assigned to those locations and third parties were being brought in to fill the vending machine and then funds were remitted to the state by a third party company and then they were being used for whatever purposes they were being used for. It could have been for um, retirement or health plans, sometimes buying equipment. The issue that we ran into when analyzing the legal requirements about vending machine is that Congress in the act provided the mechanism by which federal agencies that didn't have a blind vendor would remit payments. And that was that they would remit a payment the federal agency would then go out and find a vending company and it would remit payment back to the state agencies. And that would be for a purpose, not to have vending machines placed by a state with not assigning a blind vendor. And that the goal of the Randolph Shepard Act is to put blind individuals to work and to be filling those machines. We did say that, um, or have said that, the blind vendors who are assigned to a facility could and probably will need to, for a little bit, use third-party vendors to operate those facilities. And I say could and may need to temporarily because we recognize, we recognize this is a change in how the program has operated for a little while now. And We recognize that state agencies may not have the resources to go out and buy a whole new fleet of vending machines that have been previously third-party to a company, but 
moving forward, we hope that states will begin to make plans as we transition from what was the use of third parties instead of assigning blind vendors to these locations to moving towards that goal of having blind vendors assume these responsibilities on federal property. Now, the blind vendor, again, in analyzing their business and what makes business sense, could decide to 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 continue operating with a third party agreement but the funds and would would go to that blind vendor not back to the state agency we believe this analyzation meets the goals of the Randolph Shepard Act in the best way forward that that blind vendors will you know have a greater chance to receive that remunerative employment by filling this and we think this is how the act was designed to operate not that we would have a bunch of third-party machines generating funds, but that blind people would actually be working. The most recent TAC that we have released is TAC 2201, and this deals with how RSA views the rules approval process and how we operate when we receive a rule, a policy from a state uh, set-aside request, operating agreements, anything that needs to be approved by the secretary. We wanted to put out how the landscape and how the process looks when we receive that. When we receive a rule, as I mentioned above, we're now going to ask for a statement of active participation. We have had cases where we have received active participation statements and even where there has been some disagreements about what was presented. We had an SLA submit the rule package, and the elected committee chair of the state said there was active participation, but the elected committee disagrees in these areas. And they actually provided a a very well-thought-out list of where there were differences and where was strong agreement with the SLA. And RSA took that information from both, and we conducted our review of the submitted rules, and we returned comments to the states. And this is something that will happen frequently. There's not generally a rule that has come to RSA and sailed through smoothly without comment. Or questions, we send those back to the states. We expect that those that back and forth our comments are being shared with the elected committee because just as though there is active participation, the development of that rules package, there should also be active participation to address our questions and make any revisions so that everyone knows why the revisions are being made and the, you know that nobody's left behind when a change is made to that rule package. And often there are several things and the TAC lays out, uh, again, not an exhaustive list, not everything that would cause us to question something in a rule package, but there are some things that seem to be common flags. If we use different terms interchangeably, but we don't define them, keeping the terminology consistent, throughout the rules package, knowing and including there is often in every rule, there is something about needs to 
dress professionally. What does that mean exactly? Well, that means a lot of different things in a lot of different places. So what we have been encouraging states and blind vendors to do is to ensure, have language in there consistent with state health and safety laws and anti-discrimination legislation, because you, you don't want someone to think that they may be targeted because of perhaps they have religious garments, uh, religious clothing, or any other thing related to something that might violate somebody's civil rights. And so we've, we've tried to have those tied to health and safety and anti-discrimination legislation that's prohibited from taking action on somebody's dress. We are going to ask you if you, if your policy on transfer and promotion, if you tell us that seniority is the only thing that matters, we're going to push back on that. Sometimes as seniority is the like sort of the tiebreaker, probably don't get too many questions, but if seniority is the only thing it's based on, there will generally be questions on why that is. We have had with set-asides, we'd like to know how the decision was made. So if a set-aside policy comes in, we want to know how the review was conducted to come to the determination on set-aside. As we move forward, as we've broken down into the three groups, the three liaisons, and we realize that this tack, again, it's very recent, and people may have questions about it. One of the things we are willing to do, and the, the TAC lays this out too, is that we are willing to serve as, provide technical assistance in the development. What we will not do is we will not tell you, if you write it like this, it'll get approved because this goes through multiple layers of the department and we don't want to, we don't want to say that, but we can guide the conversation and guide the discussion to help develop rules, to um, work with the elected committees and the SLAs on the development of rule packages. And, you know, we think providing the technical assistance up front will help to speed the process along as well. So those three tags, again, can be found on the RSA website. And uh, again, I encourage you all to use the RSA website. It's a good resource. The department is using and posting much more information about Randolph Shepard than we have in the past. Uh, that is where you will also find any arbitration decisions that have been recently posted. We are going back a little bit to get some older cases put up there so that those decisions will appear for severely old cases. Um, those descriptions were written in the Federal Register. If you find an older case by searching the Federal Register and you want to see what the full decision is, you can certainly reach out to the department. We generally have to request that from our cold storage facility, but um, we will do our best to get the information out to you that you need um, related to that. But do use the RSA website and go ahead and look at the information that's up there. Uh, with that, I will take any questions that that we have time for. Okay. Well, thank you, Jesse. Thank you. That this is very enlightening. I'm just uh, I was amazed many long time ago, but I'm still amazed at how with such a small staff, you and your colleagues were able to put together these three um, well written and still get uh, the CARES Act uh, money just distributed. That was a a task in itself, and then you still found time 
to get uh, to do this technical assistance that are so direly needed uh, to keep our program on the right path, you know, so we don't get uh, take that uh, proverbial Y in the road and go down and that the blind vendor is primary here. The state uh, is uh, is a tool that the blind vendors need and uh, utilize, and it's not uh, you know, that you know, the technical assistance is just so well crafted that, that just amazes me that you and that just it, Tributes to the quality of, of yourself and your colleagues. Thank you, Dan. I okay, appreciate any, that. I all admired uh, the staff there, and yourself in particular. Are there any hands up? Yes, there are. We do have one person with a hand up, Anthony U.S. Uh, I'm Anthony DeGrasse from Florida, uh, Florida program. My question is actually from an earlier uh, session. Uh, however, uh, maybe Mr. Uh, Jesse can give some of his opinions here. Uh, I have two questions. The first one is, again, uh, I'm coming from the perspective of a relatively new vendor in the program. So I'm just kind of sitting back watching the web experience do their thing. But this is kind of an eye to the future. Now, in last night's session, it was mentioned that the Randall Shepard program hasn't been looked at since the 1970s, if I heard correctly. And then some people said that there's an opinion that it should be revisited. I'd like to hear what your opinions are for the future. What What are the things that are lacking? What's wanting? What's uh, What would make the pro- program stronger? You know, what What should uh, younger vendors look at? Program become stabilized and flourish. You know, what weaknesses do you see, Jesse, or uh, anybody in the panel? So, so Anthony, I think that's a good question. I. Um... I appreciate the question. For young vendors, I think the most important thing is to be involved. Bring new ideas to the table. I think the randolph Shepard Act has been caught. We've always done it this way. We always have to do it this way. We always should do it this way. And I think new vendors need to bring those ideas. I think you need to look at what other companies in, you know, in, in the vending sector are doing and figure out how can we adapt those to help our program move forward? I think we need to look at new ideas to what kind of businesses are we running? Are we trying to run the same old, just sticking to candy and soda pop and that kind of thing? Or could there be other options that may be more profitable to an individual? I think that a lot of care should be given to what is my vending facility going to look post-COVID? Now, in some places, post-COVID may be a little more advanced than in other places, right, due to, to whatever the restrictions in each state are. But what does my building population look like? And how can I better serve the community that I have to serve? You are exactly correct. The last time the randolph Shepard Act was amended was 1974. And the last time the regulations were updated was 1978, which is older than I am. Getting regulations done can be a very difficult process, particularly when there are thorny issues that exist. Um, and there are definitely those in the randolph Shepard regulations, which will does require, um, you know, other government agencies will get a chance to weigh in and could bog down that procedure. That's why I think we've taken the opportunity, we know that is a hard road to go sometimes, and that besides other agencies, just where randolph Shepard regulations would fall in the pecking order of the Department of Education. And so that's why we have issued 
technical assistance circulars, and we, we will continue to do that as we find issues that we can use those to help guide the conversation. As an individual who is in charge of oversight of the program, I tend to stay away from providing suggestions on how the act could be changed because that's that's the role of Congress and not, not the role of the department, whatever Congress feels or would want to change the program. We, we, we just implement what they do at the act. So I don't want to, I, I want to stay in our lane on, on that, but I'm sure other people have suggestions to how the law could be changed. They I hope that answers yeah. the question. If you have, if you have follow-ups, Anthony, please feel free. I think my, my contact information, it's certainly on the, the webpage at rsa.ed.gov, or you can just, uh, my email address is firstname.lastname at ed.gov. One of our panelists has a question. Kim Venable, you may unmute. Hi, Jesse. Thank you. That was great info. Appreciate it. Let me respond to Anthony just on some knowledge that I have on the 74 amendments and why the act's never been open. There was some efforts by vendors in the past to open up the act, but when there was discussion about that, once it's open, they can, anything can be put in. What was being suggested to be put in was that it be open to all disabilities not just the blind. I think some blind vendors got cold feet and said, no, this is not what we want. That's my little bit of history on that. For Jesse, you spoke about the active participation. I'm going to get that circular and the other information off the website. I'm in Louisiana. How do you hold the uh, SLA accountable for not for non-active participation? Our vendors are just don't even care anymore because they go to meetings and the state does what they want. And I think that's where it came in uh... You know, I'm always happy to hear a Louisiana a voice. I'm from Metairie originally. Um, oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah. So, so right, right in the neighborhood of, you know, right outside of New Orleans. And I'll provide two things I think we, that RSA could do. One is if there is, if there are issues that are going on and the elected committee's tried, we would, we could offer conflict resolution. Again, my colleague, Christine Grassman, would be able to, and that both sides have to agree to that. The other is the filing agreements process. Now, that's that could be a longer road, but that would be the way to ultimately get a resolution. I know Louisiana's vendors, not in the too near past, but had arbitration request um, against that. And, and so that would be the way. But if you don't want, if you want to try the conflict resolution, I, I would encourage that and reach out to us. And we will have listening sessions with both uh, the vendors and the SLA and, and see what the possibilities of maybe convening a, a conflict resolution would be in that case. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Sure thing. Okay. Okay, thank, thank you, Jesse. I think we're out of time. We're going to have to get moving on. Uh, short change um, in CSAB here. Uh, but again, we really appreciate your willingness uh, to share your uh, wisdom and knowledge and experience uh, and, and really appreciate, truly appreciate your dedication to making this program better. Thank you. And uh, stay warm out there. Thanks, Dan. Have a good rest of your, um, your program. Thank you. Thank you. We will. Um, we're running a little behind here. That was just such an excellent information that we I felt needed to be shared. I didn't want to cut them too short, but I, I feel bad that we didn't have to cut them short. But it's just uh, we need to stay on schedule here a little bit uh, as best we can. Uh, next on the agenda, National Council of State Agencies for the Blind, NCSAB. Um, it's a 
coalition of um, SLAs from across the country, and they really have a tremendous respect for our program. They represent all the entire blindness community, but they have a separate Randall uh, Shepherd uh, vision within them, and co-chaired by Curtis Glisson and uh, John. We Curtis unfortunately retired, and he never asked our permission to retire. He just went up and retired on us. But uh, he was just a tremendous supporter of our program. John Gordon is uh, chairing the Randall Shepherd portion of NCSCB, and they have the wisdom to retain the services of Katrina McDonald, professional um, advocate uh, within the, on the Hill in, in Washington, D.C. And Katrina does an excellent job of um, you know, monitoring things that uh, pertain to Randolph Shepard Act uh, and how to promote something or, or put a little, do a little pushback on it. Katrina was, unfortunately, she had uh, some health issues and she is unable to be with us today. She has been to a medical appointment. She has shared her notes with John Gordon, your director from Illinois. And John, as many of us old-timers, he's a long-time friend of the program. He, he is a former vendor, and he uh, took the step and became an SLA person and uh, is part of the management team in the state of Illinois. And now he chairs the Randall Shepard NCSCB. Thank, thank you, John, for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day to share your wisdom and knowledge with us and uh, how the NCSCB supports us. It's all yours, John. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. And I will tell you that, uh, you know, things haven't changed a whole lot, you guys, since I uh, came over to the dark side. Uh, I think uh, I think Sagebrush was the first convention I attended as a blind vendor back in my 20s, which was a long time ago now. And, uh, you know, one thing that has continued very clear to me, and that is that although we as state agencies, as bureaus for blind services, Although we have the responsibility to administer the program in our state, you, the vendors, have the responsibility to drive it. And most big items that have taken place over the years with Randolph Shepard have all been vendor-driven. And uh, that's good. That's the way it should be. I am sure the, the individuals who authored the 74 amendments to the Act knew that. And that's why uh, they did what they did with the amendments. And uh, yeah, wow. I, I have not attended your whole uh, conference. I just got on, but uh, I just want to say I am so sorry to hear about uh, some of your long-term leadership in uh, Terry and his wife, Bonnie, and uh, what a sad thing that is. And uh, no greater advocate for Randolph Shepard has there been than uh, Mr. Terry Comerdale. So uh, anyway, I just want to tell all you guys, I definitely uh, uh, share in your pain and your loss. He's just uh, been a great, great advocate and friend to a lot of people for a long, long time. Again, I'm sure you guys will spend time on that this conference. So NCSAB has definitely been busy the last year. We have uh, our conferences now for several years have been um, of a uh, remote manner. And I will tell you that uh, 
our uh, Randolph Shepherd Day has remained uh, a very popular item and it's really well, well attended by not only state agencies, but also by blind vendors and committee chairs from across the country. And uh, I hope that continues. I hope mostly that we can get out of this uh, pandemic that we are uh, currently living in because, you know, we have, uh, we have spent a lot of time, as all of you have, discussing vaccination mandates and what Randolph Shepard will look like in the future. Because I don't know if any of us know for sure, because we know some government agencies will never be back to work at the rate they were pre-COVID. So, uh, you know, that's a sad thing, but it's definitely time to uh, reinvent. And uh, it's very sad to see how, you know, although some vendors' earnings continue to go up in some states, I'm talking about pre-COVID, our facility numbers, the numbers of locations we have in these states, seem like they continue to go down. And it doesn't take much, you guys, if each of our states just lose three or four facilities a year. <laughs> you know, that's another couple hundred, you know. It seems uh, like when I first became a blind vendor, it seems like we were talking around 3,500 facilities. We're not even close to that anymore. So uh, that's really sad. But again, you know, as long as the vendors are driving this bus, I do think uh, that uh, collectively and collaboratively, we will find some common ground to build this thing uh, back to uh, where it once was. I will tell you that uh, once again, uh, on our big note issues, once again, what are we talking about but highway rest areas? And it seems like if it's not privatization, it's it's like just a continual fight that we have been fighting since, it seems like, since the beginning. You know, to digress a little bit, uh, Curtis Glisson, who became a uh, great friend of mine, and we had a great working relationship for several years. Yeah, sadly, uh, he did uh, retire at the end of the calendar year, and hopefully he is uh, enjoying himself down in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, I wish him nothing but the best. I hope uh, we've kind of all spoke that uh, we will hope that our uh, paths will uh, cross in the future. So uh, again, he was a great guy to work with. Right now, I am the sole chairman of the Randolph Shepherd Committee with NCSAB, and um, you know we will continue to uh, have our monthly call-ins with state agency directors to talk about issues that are in the forefront to Randolph Shepard. So at the end of January, NCSAB and other organizations submitted recommendations to the Department of Transportation in response to a call for comment in the Federal Register. NCSAB comments uh, were five main points. Number one was, we continue to oppose rest area commercialization, which would bring services to rest areas that would likely compete with or completely squeeze out line vendors. Number two, NCSAB considers EV charging stations to be vending machines 
Therefore, if states decide to place EV charging stations at rest areas along federal highways, priority to operate and manage those charging stations should go to blind vendors. Number three, the Federal Department of Transportation should advise states that they can use federal infrastructure building funds to compensate blind vendors for lost income while rest areas are closed for the installation of EV charging stations. If states decide to put EV charging stations there. Number four, state DOTs should consult with state VR agencies when they are selecting what EV charging stations to purchase and install so that VR agencies can help make sure on the back end that software needed to operate these machines is accessible to blind vendors who may be managing these chargers. The fifth point, as state DOTs consider infrastructure needs for EV chargers, they should not just consider electrical lines and the chargers themselves, but also climate-controlled shelters for travelers to be out of the heat and cold weather while their vehicles are being charged. Last week, the Federal Department of Transportation issued interim guidance to states to help them start to prepare with the infrastructure plans. As part of that guidance, DOT told states how much money each of them are eligible to receive out of the infrastructure bill's initial billion-dollar formula award for EV charging stations. Another $2.5 million will be awarded through a different process. In addition to telling states how much money they will be eligible for, the DOT, Department of Transportation, made it clear that when choosing where to place these chargers, states must prioritize highway corridors. In fact, State plans may only use infrastructure funds to place EV chargers along highways in the first year. After that, if states want EV chargers in other locations, the state will have to prove that there is at least one publicly accessible EV charging station with four EV chargers available to the public every 50 miles along every highway. So just because states have two prioritized, they have to be within a mile of the highway. So I guess that's in there. So they could be at rest areas, but they could also be placed at truck stops or at commercial properties like gas stations fast food franchises, big box stores, or other retailers at highway exits. And there are a lot of people who want these EV chargers, 
Lake Truck Stop Operators, the National Association of Convenience Stores, the National Association of Retailers, and others have submitted comments to the DOT recommending placement of these EV chargers. So you guys have to understand just what I have shared with you guys so far. We have a huge fight, and I am hoping that your state agencies, that your elected committees are up to the challenge because uh, I can tell you one thing, in Illinois, we want these at our highway rest areas. It is very, very important to us. And in what we submitted to the Federal Register, it is equally important that we are able to use some of this money to subsidize blind vendors if and when this construction is being done at their rest area because uh, this could take between six months and a year. The last time I looked, the government doesn't work at a real fast pace. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and you know, that's one thing that is really consistent too. Although I will tell you when I was a vendor, I got my vouchered money expenses a lot quicker than I get them as a state employee. But uh, Uh, You know, this, you guys, this is such an important issue. I'm sure all of you have questions. I will tell you that uh, I know Katrina and uh, other individuals have met with some of these companies uh, that do the charging stations. And uh, I just had a nephew who stopped over my house at the holiday. He drove up from Madison, Wisconsin, and... uh, uh, he told me he had to stop uh, a couple times, and I think he told me there's charging stations in all Sam's clubs, and uh, they must be open all night because uh, I know on his way home, he wasn't going to be home till after 3 o'clock in the morning, and he was going to be stopping at a Sam's. So how all of this is going to work exactly I don't think any of us know, but you guys rest assured that there is a lobby group working in your state as we speak to make sure these charging stations go into their facilities. The only reason why blind vendors will be able to make money, in my opinion, off of the charging stations is based on the fact that the federal government is going to pay for the infrastructure. And any of you who know anything about SSR 8330 for unincurred business expenses, it's pretty easy for you to see that when you do the math and when you realize that if a lot of our blind vendors were not provided with vending machines and equipment and support to operate our businesses, our income would be really, really much lower than it appears to be. So it's really the same premise with this, right? They're going to pay for these charging stations because when the private sector has purchased these out of their own money, it's kind of like a loss leader. Like they know they're not going to make money, but they're using it for what? The draw. You know, we don't have that same thing. We don't have that. Like, we couldn't purchase a charging station hoping somebody would come into the rest area to get some of our bad coffee. Sorry, you guys, but it's still bad. <laughs> anyway, that is really what I have. You know, Katrina, fortunately, she works uh, for us at NCSAB, but uh, 
like Dan said earlier, you know, it's much more than a job for her. You know, we understand her passion. In fact, the first time I met Katrina, I believe, was at a sagebrush convention a lot of years ago. But uh, yeah, that's the first time I met Katrina, and it's been really just splendid to work with her. And uh, anyway, Mr. Sipple, uh, that is what I have for today. If you guys have any questions, I'm here. I, I'm one like you guys. I could listen to Jesse for another half an hour, and it wouldn't <laughs> insult me any. But uh, Anyway, that's what I have for you. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you. And it's really a pleasure to hear your voice again. But I will have to say, um, you know, I think Katrina would be very honored uh, in your presentation, but her voice is much more pleasant than yours in my ears. (laughs) 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 But uh, give Katrina our best and tell her safe and speedy recovery. Uh, I think that's just so, because we need her so desperately. We need uh, her commitment, dedication, as well as yours, John. Knowing you for many years, and um, you're one of my go-to people all this time as to different issues and so on and so forth. And we've developed a good relationship over the years, and I hope that you trust me as much as I I trust you uh, over the years. It's just been fantastic. Okay, are there any questions, any hands up? We Um, do. Actually, I do have a question, too. Can I ask mine before we get to the... The audience? You, you bet, Scott. You bet, Scott. All okay. Right. John, good to hear from you. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thanks for coming today. My questions are just um, a little more kind of curious about the maintenance of these charging stations and what a v- blind vendor may need to know about them. I, I don't know how far into this you are yet, if you have a lot of knowledge of what these things look like and what kind of requirements they're going to have after they're installed. And if the blind vendors get to take these things over, what are they looking at? Do you have any idea yet? So I don't think any of us know a whole lot. I do not believe There will be a lot of hands-on going on. Let me say this to you. Illinois blind vendors have typically done things a little differently, as all of your states do things probably a little differently than other states. So I know that our state committee will probably be looking at a way for all rest area vendors to equally share in the proceeds. Of course, nobody's going to be in favor of doing that once they name the rest areas, if in fact they're going into rest areas, right? Once they're named, it's game over, right? Like, no, I'm the rich guy, you're the poor guy. (laughs) So uh, I really don't think we know a lot, nor do we uh, believe there will be a lot of hands-on. There's different electric than you have going to your home. As I understand, my nephew told me he could put in the electric in his garage, he could put a level one charge on his vehicle, which is good to get around town. But if he's going, you know, out on the highway and going to a different state or to other cities, then he needs a stronger charge. And that's what you would get at a charging station like a Sam's Club, you know? That's what I know. Fair enough. I know this is new to everyone, so I was just curious if you've had a chance to look a little deeper into this. Um, I'm, I'm so curious. I might have to do some research on the Internet tonight and just see what I can find out. Thank you. You're welcome. We have somebody with area code 507 ending 492. You may unmute. My name is Mike Colburn from Minnesota. Hi, everyone. Um, so I had a couple questions, and allow me to adjust my tinfoil hat. 
when John had mentioned um, submitting comments, uh, Dan, did RSVA submit any public comment to the DOT? And Not at this point. Okay. So I guess my concern is I'm wondering how this doesn't lead to commercialization. And I ask that because I use California as an example, because I'd be curious, a show of hands, of how many people know that California roadside rests already have car chargers. And I know that they're a pilot program, but some of these are sponsored by electric vehicle manufacturers. And I'm just wondering how we put the two back in the toothpaste on that one. But also, I guess it's, to me, this is just one step closer to commercialization. And just wondering your thoughts on that, John. So I know there are people who feel that way, but because we believe that a charging station can be looked at as a vending machine, it disperses a product. And uh, because we believe that is the case, we believe that it falls under our priority. I mean, I know people have different arguments over this issue, but uh, I don't really see it that way. I might feel different. Well, in Illinois, you know, our state law pertaining to highway rest areas prevents us from selling like items, you know, to, uh, you know, what they're selling in gas stations, you know, in the way of uh, fuel, oil, and so forth. But this is totally different. And to be honest with you, we in Illinois were offered charging stations, I want to say, as far back as 10 or 12 years ago. And at that time, we just kind of stared away from it. We thought it was too early, and it obviously was. We believe that it's a machine that disperses a product. For that reason, we feel it falls under our priority, and we don't feel that it really is in the same uh, vein as privatization of rest areas. I think one point to the mic you um, with the charging stations is um you know, it's unknown yet, uh, the profit margin, but it's more, more than likely it's going to be a low profit margin, you know, if we as buying vendors uh, maintain control of the units at the rest areas, there could be a markup, but it'll be small. What you're going to have is um, your truck stops and your fast food restaurants installing charging stations as a loss leader, as John mentioned, the loss leader. And so what that'll do is deter people from rest areas. But if we have the charging stations available and, and make them as a, a leader to get the people to stop in that the rest area versus a truck stop or a fast food restaurant, I think is the, the more important factor we want to look at. And, uh, and hopefully, that, you know, uh, make a little money off it in the process. But the uh, main thing is to draw the customer in there because right now rest areas were built under congressional uh, leadership as safe havens. The truck drivers are only uh, allowed so many hours per day and so many hours per week to drive. And if they're pulled over and they're, they're logged out, they have to pull into a, uh, a way station or a highway rest area as a safe haven. And hopefully, you know, by having the charging stations available at the rest areas, they'll still use the rest areas for that purpose. Uh, as well as the, the tourist traffic uh, will use the rest areas rather than going to a Sam's Club or to a Arby's or a McDonald's or or the local truck stop, and then they benefit from when the people walk in to use the facilities, they'll buy something else. We want them to stop at the rest areas. And since you know, the infrastructure bill, if it goes through, we'll provide these, and it will be no additional expense to the, the Randolph Shepherd program as a whole. We better be uh, monitoring it, and like John said, we better dig our heels in, and, um, you know, and we're be so grateful that NTSAB did uh, submit these comments very eloquently 
put out there and, and it's difficult um, for DOT to do anything other but there I can assure you there will be states that will try to deviate from that because uh, there'll be a fear of uh, maintenance on these EV units um, 10 years 20 years down the road uh, which is likely but uh, it's too early to worry about that I think now we just got to focus on make sure our rest areas are taken care of and that they maintain priority for our blind vendors. Anyone else have a hand up? Yes, one of our attendees. Actually, we're we're running out of time. So uh, I can give the ending code right now for folks who want it. The ending CE code for um, credits is 1-A-B-B-G-H. So 1-A-B as in boy. B G H. Thank you, Eric. Also, you, have some door prizes. Ooh, right. Bring on the door prizes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have Billy Runlow from Tennessee. I have Melissa Shelton from Tennessee. And I have Paulette Williams from Florida. All right. Congratulations. Okay. That's great. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate and I say uh, your willingness to take time out of your day and uh, bring us up to date on what NCSC is up to. And uh, we really appreciate, um, you know, all that NCSCB does for us blind vendors. Or, you know, I've attended many NCSCB conferences and tremendous amount of uh, commitment, dedication amongst the members there for the Randolph-Shepard program. Uh, they all have a great best interest at heart. Have a great conference, you guys. All right. Thank you, John. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. We're going to take a little break now. Donna Seliger will be back uh, as your moderator. I'm sure you'll have a much more pleasant voice experience with Donna than with myself. And uh, Donna will guide us through the next portions of our program. Thank you all for your attendance to this. And I hope you've all learned and gleaned as much information as I have just always so refreshing to up to date on what's going on around the different organizations and so on and so forth and the commitment dedication from others in the program.